Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, co-host of the show. So happy that you're here. Listen, today I was moved to tears multiple times by just some of the beautiful moments that our guests brought today. I'm talking about the author and editor of 19 books, former longtime dean of Duke Divinity School, former vice president and vice provost of global strategy at Duke University, and provost and executive vice president of, get ready for this, Sikkim Bears, Baylor University. And now he is the current president of Belmont University right here in our own Nashville, Tennessee. I'm talking about Dr. Greg Jones, Enneagram 3, Wing 2, y'all. He brings the fire. Thankful that he's here. Thankful that you're here to listen. And that's it for me, Anthony Skinner. Without any further ado, here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Typology Tribe, please welcome my friend, Greg Jones, president of Belmont University, Enneagram 3 with the two-wing. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you, Ian. It's great to be with you. I want to just uh, remind you of how and when we first met, which you might not remember. You were at Duke Divinity School, the dean at Duke. I was a new board of visitors member at Duke. I was a terrible board of visitors member, so I apologize for that right now. <laughs> and we traveled with a small group of people to Cambridge for Indeed. Easter week one year. I went with my 17-year-old son, Aiden. I remember. It was, uh, this is no exaggeration, perhaps the most memorable and joyful week of my life. Wow. Was it the Indian dinner we shared together? <laughs> Yeah, it was the curry. It was the curry. <laughs> That's great. No, you know what it was? It was, first of all, we were, people just need to know this. We were, the whole week was centered around T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets. It, yeah. The people who were there were well. extraordinary. Jeremy Begbie, you, Mako Fujimura, uh, oh, Bruce Herman. about this. Uh, Rowan Williams. Rowan Williams. Oh, my gosh. Malcolm Geit. Yep. Uh, the list could go on and on, right? Uh, uh, Miholo Shiel was there, right? I mean, yep. it was just an extraordinary gathering of people. My son and I studied the four quartets before we went. Wow. We would read it to each other, particularly the last quartet, Little Gidding, which he can mm. almost quote by heart. Mm. Okay. Wow. Uh, and it, there were so many magical moments. I'll just tell you one was in the chapel at King's, I think it was at Evensong one night, and we sat there, Aiden and I, together, and they sang the Miserere Mei, which we would wow. never have anticipated. And we both know it, right? So we're sitting there, and I'm just thinking to myself, this is a hard place to be an atheist. <laughs> you know, yes. here I am. And the connection to my son that, that evening hmm. was just so profound and rich. And so anyway, that's how we first Oh, I remember that week. It was a spectacular week, including a performance of the King's College Choir. Yes. Uh, and uh, it was just a remarkable time. And it was a John McMillan piece, wasn't it? It was. Oh, my it gosh, was. I remembered. Yep. Oh, indeed. my gosh. Holy smoke. And now here's another connection. I live 0.2 miles from Belmont University. 
Is that right? I do. I live in 12 South on, oh, ooh, I shouldn't tell people the actual time. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, 500,000 people know Ian's address. <laughs> That's hilarious. Anyway, I live in 12 South, 0.2 miles from your campus. I know four or five of your faculty as really good friends who I count as really good friends. I won't tell you who it is in case that actually is a mark against them. And I have spoken in the chapel at Belmont probably three or four times. Great. And I love Belmont University. Oh, thanks. We do too. Yeah, man. It's a great place. It's a great community and 12 South is a great place to live. Well, you keep building closer and closer to my house. And so that's a little <laughs> bit of an anxiety producer. But anyway, the, uh, because you're growing so quickly and so mm-hmm. magnificently. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to have all kinds of good things to say about uh, Belmont as we go along, because I want our audience to hear about it. I want our parents that listen to our show to hear about it. I want prospective students who listen to our show mm-hmm. to hear about it. And um, I feel so wonderful about Belmont, and particularly because I first saw it in 1995. And I'll tell you, it's a lot different than it was then. Yes. Well, you know, my parents lived in an apartment across the street from my office on Wedgwood when my dad was doing his doctoral work at Vanderbilt. So my parents remember Belmont College back in the 1950s. And uh, so the transformation has been amazing. And it turns out I didn't know this till my appointment as president was announced. But uh, my grandmother on my father's side attended Ward Belmont in Mm. 1922-23. So literally a hundred years ago this year, she was a student at Ward Belmont, the predecessor to Belmont. So it's a special set of connections, but it has grown tremendously over the last Mm. 50 or 60 years. Well, as Bob Dylan says, for the times they are changing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Okay. You're an Enneagram three. You're familiar with the Enneagram. How did that happen? Well, I've been trying to, I've been on a journey of trying to understand my own story. And, mm. uh, you know, anybody who knows me would say that I'm not the uh, the least complex person they've ever known. So friends were telling me about the Enneagram, and I said, well, I'd love to learn more, see if taking it will help me understand. And it was just uh, one of those kind of aha moments where I began to understand both my gifts better and also some of my downsides. Mm. And uh, so, you know, really coming to terms with that. And it's also been part of a journey that uh, I've been able through some of my research as well as just experiences to kind of learn uh, how to be more gracious to myself. Because uh, as a three, I've tended to always focus on what I've accomplished and Mm. never feel like I was worthy except by what I was doing. And so, you know, really, I was better at preaching grace or talking about grace and forgiveness than I was living it myself. And so the Enneagram really helped me both understand some of my gifts and uh, tendencies, but also to come to terms with some of the shadow sides of my life. And as you have worked with the shadow side, and we there's men, there's a list, right, each of our types of, you know, shadow dimensions, which yeah. of those shadows do you feel is like... Man, that's my nemesis. That's the really big one. I think I'd probably say the sense that my worth is in what I accomplish. Mm-hmm. That okay. uh, I just, I'm always feeling like I'm not doing enough. And mm-hmm. so it's that sense of that drive for accomplishment that uh, it's not about 
the credit. It's just about feeling like I've worked hard enough. Mm. And that has, you know, I used to blame it more on my parents, probably unfairly, because I think they struggled raising someone who never felt like he did enough. And, you know, I've been a parent of someone who has that same tendency. (laughs) So that challenge of feeling like I've never done enough and the kind of workaholism that's associated with being a three and the need to please has Mm. all just kind of woven itself together. And sometimes it's caused physical illness. Uh, My wife will, who's a six will sometimes say to me, uh, you know, uh, she's very loyal and also skeptical, but she will say to me, if you don't observe the Sabbath, sickness becomes your Sabbath. She usually waits Mm. till I'm sick to note it uh, to me, which is really annoying, but it's that sign that, you know, I love the Denise Levertov poem that uh, is about lying on your back in a, in the ocean and just feeling yourself embraced in the creator. And I love that poem because it's so antithetical to how I tend to live, which is go, 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 work, 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 accomplish, accomplish, accomplish. You know, you remind me, Greg, and thank you for your vulnerability. I find it so interesting that if you were to look at the unconscious motivation of each of the nine Enneagram types, what you would discover is each of them is in direct opposition to the story of the gospel. (laughs) Right? The one believes that uh, perfection is expected of them, and that is the only way that they will win love and fend off attack. You know, the two believes that they, uh, in order to be liked and approved of, they have to help. You know, you know, we could go through them all, right? And you've just articulated that of the three. And mm-hmm. part of the journey, and this is the beauty when you use the Enneagram as a spiritual development tool, is you begin to sort of look at how is my life predicated on a fundamental lie? Yeah. <laughs> No, that's right. And, you know, part of what I think also getting older has helped me to do is to realize that I don't need to be the center of attention. I don't need to be touting my accomplishments. And so there's been much more of an embrace of others. And, you know, part of the wonder of the Enneagram I also love is that it highlights the diversity of gifts Mm -hmm. and that, you know, I need other people who represent other types and other tendencies. And, you know, that's, I think, really important. And so my wife, being both loyal and a skeptic, uh, has sometimes led us to tension in our marriage. And yet I've learned that her being skeptical is actually really valuable for my tendency (laughs) to always be focused on accomplishments. And so I've learned and we've learned in almost 40 years of marriage to uh, appreciate the other's tendencies. And Greg, we talked about this beforehand, but you just tipped your hat to what your wife is. Would you let the audience know what your wife is? My wife is a six. Six. Yeah. That's why you said skeptic and loyal. Skeptic. Yeah. Yeah. And you threes are optimists by nature. And uh, sixes are, can trend more toward pessimism than optimism. Yep. I can spin a yarn and communicate to to sell something and tell a story all day long. And then my wife will say, "Uh, you know, you exaggerated there. And are you sure it was true there? And, you know, at my best, I really appreciate and welcome that. And at my worst, I find it intensely annoying and tell her to get on board the train. Yes. And you actually mentioned earlier something that's lovely about sixes as they get older and they do some work and self-examination, which is that they don't need to be the driver of the bus anymore. They can just be another dude on the bus. Yeah. 
They're okay with other people getting credit and success. They're not lone wolves. And when they're really unhealthy, a three will not only take credit or market themselves as the one, they'll sometimes take credit for other people's work, you know, <laughs> when they're young, you know, and not very self-aware. Yep. yep. And so that's a wonderful thing that you just mentioned. You know, one of the things that we know about threes, of course, is this this capacity to, or this gift to be able to present a different image or project a different image to different people in order to win their admiration or to further their own career or their own ambitions. Yep. Now, it's interesting. I, here's what I know about university college presidents, virtually nothing. However, <laughs> here's one thing I think I do know. I remember Peter Drucker saying one time that he felt that the three most difficult jobs in America were to be a hospital administrator, right? The second one was to be a pastor of a church over 300. This is Peter Drucker. This is pretty fascinating. And the third was to be a university or college president. And I think the reason was, is that you have so many different interest groups clawing yeah. at you at any given moment, right? You have alumni, you have faculty, you have parents, you have students, you know, and they all believe that they have the most essential or important voice in the room or, you know, priorities, et cetera. I would imagine the ability to swap out masks in that setting could be a really a great benefit, but it could also be not. It, it could lead to you forgetting who Greg Jones actually is. Mm, yeah. Tell me about that for you. Well, I think that was the big risk, particularly when I first became a dean and moved into university leadership. But it goes back to when I was a teenager. And I used to, rem I, I remember very vividly because I was an athlete in high school. I was an academic on the debate team. I was a kid who went to church and youth group. And I had three almost entirely different sets of friends. And I used to worry about dying because I thought that if all my friends got together, they would find not a coherent person, but three different people. Because I wow. was really good at adopting whatever the persona was I needed to wow. in those different groups. And so I really worried about that. And I tried to turn that to more constructive uses. But it, but the question of who's the real Greg and what's the center mm -hmm. was always a question. And when I became dean for the first time, I realized that it really was a, an advantage that I could go talk to people about Duke basketball and they wouldn't have any idea that I was a divinity school dean. And mm -hmm. then I could go talk to scholars and talk about the intricacies of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. And then I could go out into churches and talk to ordinary people in rural communities. And that was very beneficial. But I always had that lingering worry about what's the center. And I've always kind of asked myself, is there a coherent self that is consistent through it all? And that's one of the reasons why Dietrich Bonhoeffer has been really influential for me in the mm. way he talked about making Christ the center and really seeing yourself in that light. Mm. And right. that's, that's a way of, I think, pointing to the heart of the gospel that also meant that I had an, a, a kind of transcendent check that kept me more centered 
even as I can move among diverse constituencies. Part of what I love about being at Belmont is we have 13 colleges and I can go talk to people in, and talk about music and talk about business and talk about science and talk about teaching. And there's a wondrous diversity that plays into that ability to put on different masks or to show different interests. Yes. And yet there is a coherence to it that I think is particularly, I've gotten better at with age of knowing uh, who I am because the centeredness actually doesn't come from me having to prove myself or please everyone right. and to find that center centeredness in Christ. Beautiful. Yeah. So I, what I appreciate is that you are, you know, and this is something I'm, I'm learning to do more and more of the time, which is, you know, learning to always be checking my motives. Yeah. And, you know, is my ability to, identify with and uh, win over different people? Is my motive as pure as it can get in this life? Or is it, ah, God, is it skewing towards something that's a little more self-interested, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's just something we have to ask ourselves right every day. It's like, yep. man, you know, what are my motives here? And to constantly be checking them, you know? Yeah. Well, I think one um, of the gifts that happened for me was that I had really kind of decided I didn't want to be a university president. And so when the invitation from Belmont came to be considered, it really was something that I was able to say, I don't need this for myself. And it's mm. really enabled me to be a very different kind of leader wow. because I really do sense a calling, which was very different than, you know, when I was appointed as dean of Duke Divinity School at age 36, I thought I was, you know, hot stuff. And I had lots of self-deception about what my motives were. And, you know, I was just going to build the institution. But, boy, I sure liked center stage. And now I really feel this sense of just if I can make the institution and other people better and help it to flourish, uh, yes. it's a lot different. And part of that's a journey. And part of that's the journey of the Enneagram and learning both your giftedness and your shadows. Yes. I, you know, it's interesting in the road back to you, there's a quote by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's in the chapter on threes. And I, it's one of my favorite quotes. It says that no man, and we can say woman as well, for any considerable period can wear one face to him or herself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the true. And this is what you're talking about, this journey from uncertainty, who am I? It's like in the midst of all the possible masks, the kaleidoscope of projected images, who is the real Greg Jones? Is it, are his motives right? And this grounding in Christ, this is that uh, this sort of that that's who I am, right? The one who belongs mm -hmm. to Christ, or however we want to, you might want to put it. Yeah. And it's just a, such a wonderful example, you know, to other people and to uh, how they, for three is how they might begin to make the journey toward authentic selfhood, if you will. All right. So how long have you been president now since 2021? Am I right? Yep. About 19 months. Well, isn't it fun that you got pitched into this thing right in the middle of a pandemic? That sounds like a <laughs> that sounds like a blast. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Somebody asked me yesterday about what it was like to become a president in the midst of a pandemic. I said, "Well, uh, I got used to being disliked by both extremes. Whatever we did, there was somebody on the left and somebody on the right complaining. So you learn humility pretty quickly." Man, oh man. I mean, you threes are better at diplomatically coping in situations like that. You know, um, fours like me just 
you know, if they want to get a bottle of scotch and escape to a hotel room for four days, but it's, you know, that's so hard for me. So I really, I envy that in a, a guy like yourself. And, uh, though so, I did have a hard time admitting failure. Oh, which, tell me about that. You know, that was part of the wrestle was I wanted to accomplish something and it didn't feel like anything I did worked around mm-hmm. COVID. Wow. That, you know, it was just one of those things. And, you know, that's been part of the journey, you know, that I've really tried to think about and study, you know, innovation and, you know, IDEO's slogan, uh, the design firm out in California is fail quickly so you can succeed sooner. And becoming aware that failure didn't have to be something that was kind of morally decisive or something like that. Mm. But I still struggle because of that, that three focus on accomplishment, Mm. you know, dealing with the pandemic and just knowing that it wasn't, that I wasn't going to be able to persuade everybody Mm. or in some cases, much of anybody, (laughs) right? you know, meant that, that I would have probably joined you with that bottle of scotch in a hotel room (laughs) for several days. (laughs) Well, (laughs) unfortunately it would have been like a La Quinta or, you know, (laughs) but I'm glad we didn't have to go there together. So the La Quinta would have been okay if the scotch was good enough, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's, true that's unfortunately (laughs) unfortunately true so tell me what's going on at belmont like what are you excited about what's happening in the institution that just gets you up in the morning and makes you go wow this is the greatest thing ever well it's a university with a lot of momentum and it's connected to nashville which has a lot of momentum as you know and that synergy is just extraordinary to see that kind of positive focus on the future, which, you know, is a good fit for a three, uh, somebody who wants to accomplish things. You know, I've done some times where I had to turn around stuff and, mm. you know, there was a lot of conflict and I did it and I learned some things, but it wasn't my sweet spot. And so being in a place that's focused on the future and where there's mm. this wondrous diversity of people uh, has just been incredible. I, I still kind of laugh. We're a university known for our music and entertainment business college and our connections to music grow. And I can't carry a tune. I'm not allowed to sing in the shower. And so it's kind of fun that I get to be president of a university and learning all about songwriting and music. And so that's you know been our bread and butter. We also uh, have a lot of emphasis in healthcare. Uh, we're building a new uh, medical school, starting a new medical school and building a building there on Wedgwood, right near where you live on, in 12 South. And uh, we've had strong nursing and pharmacy and now adding that health care uh, has been tremendous. I think if you look, Nashville's been known for its music entertainment business. That's the strength of Belmont. It's been known as healthcare city and it's growing dynamically there. And that's a big part of us. And now we're launching into work in data and a data collaborative as companies like Oracle are moving in and it's affecting every every vocation uh, in those ways. And so the opportunity to really lean into that has been tremendous and tremendously exciting. I think there are a couple of things that are distinctive related to your work in the Enneagram that also get me really excited. Belmont's long had a, an emphasis on character and focusing on teaching and learning and really pouring into students. And so we've made one of our strategic pathways for the next decade, what we're calling whole person formation. You know, Mm. too many educational institutions, especially universities, treat people as if we're brains on sticks and just 
conveying information. Well, you know, Google pretty well put an end to that because, you know, if you're giving a lecture based on information, students are fact checking you in real time on Google and, you know, saying, uh, you said it was 1827, it was actually 1841, you know, so it's not really useful to just convey information. So how do we mold character and form whole people uh, in terms of thinking and feeling and perceiving and living and that wholeness there. And, you know, a second pathway uh, that one of our five pathways, in addition to whole person formation, we call storytelling that inspires the world through truth, goodness, and beauty. Mm. And, you know, your work on discovering the story of you and the road back to you is really crucial. And how we learn to tell our story well is so important. Uh, you know, at Belmont, we have storytellers that are songwriters. And I love that our songwriting faculty all have Grammys. You know, they're, mm -hmm. they're really good storytellers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thinking about all those intersections. And, you know, I think the pandemic especially just intensified a sense that uh, we'd lost much focus on storytelling, whether about our ourselves, you know, the mental health crises or about a loss of a coherent self, but also is there something about the future that we can look forward to? Is there a transcendent God? Is there goodness? Um, because I was coming in at the beginning of a pandemic, we were looking for a tagline for my inaugural year and the inauguration. We settled on a phrase called let hope abound. And I wanted something positive and forward-looking, and once we settled on that, I didn't realize how much it would catch hold. And I think it was that yearning to sense a story that has a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. Because for so many of us, the pandemic just intensified a fear that the future wasn't something to look forward to. You know, and the the other thing, when I was at Duke, you know, if I had an idea, I'd write an essay about it and eight people would read it or claim to read it, including my family. And most of them had lied about whether they'd actually read it. I came to Belmont. We had this phrase, let hope abound, and multiple songs have been written about it. Great. <laughs> and, you know, one for a symphony orchestra. And I'm like, wow, this is kind of fun. I think people are yearning for that sense of hope and that sense of community. And I think that, you know, to be able to hear one another's stories, to share one another's stories, and to find a story worth living. Yes. Yes. You know, it's interesting you should mention that. I'm just going to throw out some stuff here because I get excited about things. And <laughs> this whole thing may become fractured uh, in my presentation. However, do you remember years and years ago, I think it was in the 1980s, an academic at St. Olaf's maybe wrote a piece called How the World Lost Its Story? Robert Jensen. Yes, yes, Robert Jensen. it came Jensen. out about 1990. I've taught that article many times. I is love it, that article. It's a great article. It I'm is indeed. I'm so glad that you like it. Um, oh, it's brilliant. Yes, it is. And uh, I, uh, I remember reading it and just being floored. Folks, for those of you who maybe are unfamiliar with it, I, you can go right online and grab it. And I'll give a precis of it, and you can fill in, Greg. I mean, it's, uh, it's really all about this idea that at one time the world at least in the West, shared a common story, right, through the through a, a Judeo-Christian lens, right? Uh, this is how the world is and why, right? Well, as we move into, through the years, into post-modernity, et cetera, et cetera, that story, that common storyline began to fall apart. Now we live in a supermarket of stories that try to explain why the world is how it is. And that those stories might be capitalism. They might be communism. They might be Christianity. They might be you know, on and on and on. And uh, anyway, it's an amazing piece. And I, I do think in this context of Belmont, 
presenting the world as having a story. It does have a story. And we have individual stories that fall under the umbrella of that larger story. And we can either advance that story for good or not. Does yeah. that, am I getting this right? Oh, absolutely. And, and actually, I think one of the things that Jen's pointed to in that article was that the world losing its story and just becoming fractured in that way easily lends itself to nihilism and just a kind of despair, which I do think is part of what's behind the level of mental health crises that we're experiencing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the rate of suicide and all sorts of things like that. I'll tell you, last spring, I was at a reception in downtown Nashville and, you know, you have your name tags on and everything. This guy comes over to me and he says, hey, are you the president of Belmont? And I, I usually kind of flinch, like, are you getting ready to complain about, you know, this or that? So I, I said, yes. And he said, y'all are the hope people. And I just thought, oh, wow, I like that. You know, if we're known as a place that helps to instill that sense of hope, uh, you know, I'd like to be known as a hope dealer mm -hmm. um, in, in that sense. And I do think that what Jens was pointing to, you know, was tendency toward nihilism. And since he wrote that article, if anything, it feels like it's gotten worse, not better. Yeah, yeah. And I think what we're yearning for and what people are yearning for, is there a way? And it's important to say hope isn't optimism because, you know, I, I can fall into that optimism as a three and then my wife starts giving me the pessimistic right. rendering. The sense of hope is not about the world getting better and better. It's about trusting that God is still God and mm -hmm. that sense of hope for the future. And I think that's, you know what's really powerful. Uh, one of my close friends, in fact, somebody who was in Cambridge, uh, Kevin Rowe, uh, mm. who teaches New Testament at Duke, uh, his wife had this horrible illness and uh, she died this past weekend. And, you know, the suffering she went through for years was really extraordinary. And his care for her was equally extraordinary. And as I was thinking about this weekend, you know, I'm just grateful to be able to inhabit a story that says that suffering isn't decisive, mm -hmm. <laughs> that there was still a love and a hope that carried them through some really difficult times. And I think that's what the world is yearning for. I'll yes. tell you one other quick story that's a Belmont, quintessential Belmont story. So Garth Brooks, you know, as you know, in Nashville, uh, these, you know, world famous uh, music stars just kind of are, are around town. Oh, yeah. And he wanted to do an evening at our Fisher Center for students. And so his deal was he wouldn't charge anything if we didn't charge anything. This was a really good deal for us. Mm -hmm. um, and he said he just wanted to spend the time with the students. They had all the good seats. So my wife and I were there and we're off to the site. Well, it turns out the night that he came turned out to be about three or four days after Russia had invaded Ukraine. So Garth comes out on the stage and all he has is his guitar and a headset. And Trisha came with him. And he said, I'm going to play some songs, but I'm mostly going to just to answer your questions. And I'll take requests of songs. Well, one thing I learned that night was that every Belmont student's mother loves Garth Brooks. So, you know, every student who asked a question, it was, you know, my mom loves you. And Garth would say, what's your mom's name? Susan, Stephanie, whatever. And he'd say, pull out your phone. And he'd do a video. Hi, uh, Stephanie, this is Garth. I love you too. What's your mom's favorite song? You know, that was a fun moment. But about 20 minutes into the evening, a young woman says, right now it feels like the world is falling apart and it feels self-indulgent to want to be a songwriter. Can you help me? 
Ooh, I thought, I'm glad he's up on stage and I'm not. And he paused and it was wonderful. I mean, it was just him at his very best. And he said, I hear you. And then he said this, he said, let me tell you, there are going to be a lot of times in your life when the world feels like it's falling apart. And there'll be times in your life when it feels like your life is falling apart. And he said, in all those times, the world and you will still need beauty. So rather than thinking it's self-indulgent to be a songwriter, why don't you double down and help create beauty that will inspire others to see possibilities for the future? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just thought, wow, you know, and I do think that there's that, that yearning. And part of what I love about Belmont is that there is that yearning to write songs Mm. and to capture that bigger story that can say, you know, life really stinks and I can go on, Mm. you know, there is hope. And that's been some of the great songs as well as great hymns, uh, over, over many, many years. And there's a depth to that. Yes. And I just love, you know, having zero talent. I joke with our commercial voice instructors who all, who say they can teach anybody to sing. And I say, I'm your test case you know, for that because I have no, no musical ability, but boy, do I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that, uh, this is the message of great songs of great hymns and, uh, we could say great poetry. We can also yeah. say obviously great novels. And right away, I was yep. thinking. About, I was thinking about Tolkien, hmm. and I was thinking, you know, I'm, and I, you know, I like Tolkien. I don't, you know, he's fantastic. But you, you think about the, one of the messages of the Lord of the Rings was that, and I, this is not original to me, that despair is really a terrible sin, not a discouragement, but despair is a terrible yeah. sin because it presumes that you know the end of the story. Yeah. And th- when you're talking about hope, there always has to be this sort of open-handed, almost with bated breath, kind of trust that I don't know the end of this story. Yeah. But I hope, my hope tells me, that in some way it can be part of a larger story uh, with, you know, I was thinking again, another word, Ian's going off here, seeming failures can be eucatastrophes, yeah, right? They can right. be quote unquote good catastrophes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'm making sense, but that's oh. what comes up for me as you're describing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I do think that's part of the larger biblical story is, you know, that uh, Jesus comes from the stump of Jesse, you know, and there is that sense that goodness can emerge. Uh, Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, that the word nevertheless is so much, you know, kind of a willingness to acknowledge. There are times when I think about the brutalities in Ukraine. So, you know, we had a, a guy who runs a microfinance organization around the world. And it's an amazing organization. I was talking to him. I said, tell me the origin story. I'm interviewing him in front of students. And he said, well, we were founded in Ukraine. And I said, oh, that must mean that, you know, this last several months has been really hard. And then he started to talk about what it was like to do Zoom calls with people who didn't want to leave. They were trying to evacuate them. They wanted to stay there with, you know, their people And then they'd end the Zoom call because bombs were dropping and some people didn't live through the day. You know, my heart just kind of wrenches. And I think, how do you go on? 
it's that nevertheless, that you can actually hear a story like that and say, nevertheless, and to then, you know, spend time with children or young adults as part of the joy of, you know, being around 18 to 22 year olds, there's a kind of youthfulness and a, and an excitement. And that I really hope that young people are going to make the world better than my generation is leaving it. And that's a big part of why I'm an educator is I want to see young people dream dreams Mm. and for themselves and for each other and for this world. Mm. And, you know, that, that sense you, you said of about a you catastrophe, you know, it's something I've had to learn from the gospel because it's not my own tendency. I don't like to think about failure, <laughs> but to recognize that some of the things when I was a young person that I thought were devastating at the time turned out to be unbelievable blessings when looked at yep. over the long view. Yeah. Sure didn't feel like that at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> or any time resembling that moment, but it's part of what it means to to continue to grow and learn and to ultimately in that as in that Levertov poem just to feel the embrace of God. Mm. Um what is the name of that poem by the way? I it's a vowel. That's it. A V O W A L. It's a very short poem. A vowel. A vowel. Okay. Well, she's a Christian poet who lived outside of Seattle, who also had the best description of Seattle that I've ever heard. She said that living in Seattle is like being married to a beautiful woman who's sick most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) That is is so funny. Wow. Well, listen, Greg, this has been so rich, man. And I want to actually close by reading that poem. Because it, you, we've, you've referenced it twice, and I, I have not read it, but I'm just going to read it uh, as maybe part of our close. Mm. Uh, so this is Denise Levertov, and her last name is spelled L-E-V-E-R-T-O-V. She has wonderful, I have a number of collections of her poems, and they are, they are extraordinarily beautiful. And this is titled The Avowal. As swimmers dare to lie face to the sky and water bears them, as hawks rest upon air and air sustains them, so would I learn to attain freefall and float into Creator's spirit's deep embrace, knowing no effort earns that all surrounding grace. Wow. That is so good. That's a gospel message oh. to Enneagram threes. Yes. Yes. It is. Oh, wow, man. Anthony, are you getting chills from that like I am? You're getting teared I, up right I'm, now. I'm moved very much. Wow. So. Mm-hmm. Greg, so rich, man. So rich. Tell everybody how they can learn about you, about Belmont, all the good stuff that's going on out there. Well, thanks. Belmont.edu is our website, and there's lots of wonderful things uh, happening uh, at Belmont through that. And I'm at l.gregory.jones at belmont.edu, and I'm on LinkedIn and love to connect with people and just grateful for this larger community. You know, I've been thinking in the midst of the pandemic and since that old line from E.M. Forster, only connect is Mm. so important. And that sense of connection and community is so important. So please reach out. Would love to be in touch. And it's been great being with you today. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's been great reconnecting with you too. Typology Tribe, remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. 
May you have rest. Until next time.